Our study in sin and judgment continues in 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read into chapter 2, verse 15. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer, and a persecutor, and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy, because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet, for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. For th this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. And for this, I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works, as befits women making a claim to godliness. Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve, and it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint.
Amen. When we are studying sin and judgment in these passages, our focus is what is sin and what is not sin? And how should we view it now in this world? Because if we don't view it properly in this world, what God thinks of sin in this world, then we'll be in trouble in the world to come. On the day of judgment, God will inflict His fierce wrath against us through His Son, Jesus Christ. Revelation 19, 11-21 teaches that His, the Father's fierce wrath will be meted out, it will be inflicted upon all those who do not truly believe in the gospel of Christ. And the problem is, typically speaking, we have a faulty, deficient, diluted view of sin. And that's the reason for this series, to highlight what the New Testament says. The Testament people say is full of love, whereas the Old Testament is full of hate. The New Testament is full of patience, whereas the Old Testament, God, He is impatient and quick to anger. But that's not the case. That's not true at all. The New Testament God is the same as the Old Testament God. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. In the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Same God in identity and same God in attributes. And so when we study... 1 Timothy, we'll see what the Apostle expects Timothy, the pastor, Timothy, the young pastor, what he expects Timothy to understand about sin and judgment. After his greeting in verses 1 to 2, remember, the greeting is not unimportant because it is establishing, reminding us that the writer of this letter is no typical human being. He's just not another man. He is Paul the Apostle of Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. This is who is writing this letter. He is the Apostle who, in Galatians 1, says he did not learn the gospel from man, nor was he taught it from man, but he received it by a revelation of Jesus Christ. In Galatians 1, 11 to 17. Acts chapter 9, Luke also records the miraculous conversion of the Apostle Paul. This is important because typically people are wiser than the Apostle Paul. People are smarter than the Apostle Paul in their own mind, in their own heart. So when they read something that Paul says, they hate it. They despise it. They want nothing to do with it. They think, well, who is this man? I'm just reading these pages or these words on a page and pages in the Bible, but how do I know that he's reliable? How do I know he's trustworthy? Why should I listen to anything he has to say? Well, read about his history. Read about his authority. Read about how he became an apostle. He even recounts here in verses 12 to 17 his conversion, as he does elsewhere. So so let us not mitigate at all the authority, inspiration, and practicality, the, the practical nature of what we find here in the Apostle Paul. Verse 3, verses 3 to 7. I urge you upon my departure for Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In the city of Ephesus, Timothy was left there for a purpose, it says in verse 3, in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Strange doctrines are those doctrines that are not founded on Scripture. Strange doctrines are those doctrines that are man-made. Strange doctrines actually ultimately come from Satan himself. They are called strange because they're not coming from the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus through his prophets and apostles. In in Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul, he addressed the elders of Ephesus. He addressed the elders of Ephesus in Acts 20, 17 to 38. And this was the last time he would see them. At least that's what he declares. The last time that he would see them. And he's so concerned 
about these strange doctrines, he says this in verses 28 to 31. uh, Chapter 20, verse 28 of the book of Acts. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. All the time he was there with them, day and night for three years, he did not cease to admonish each one with tears because he understood what hangs in the balance. He understood that human souls will either go to heaven or go to hell. He understood that. And he understood that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And Satan has his emissaries. He has his ambassadors. He has his savage wolves who come in sheep's clothing. They come into the local church and they arise up out of the local church to draw away the disciples after them. And because this is so dangerous, he did not cease to admonish each one with tears for three years, day and night. He says, be on guard. Shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Be on the alert, verse 31. And now he's telling Timothy the same. I left you there because I have confidence in you and your ability to discern the difference between truth and error and to handle these men, to deal with these men who are teaching strange doctrines. He says certain men. That's his way of referring to the false teachers, which he mentions two of them in this chapter, Chapter 1, verse 20, 1 Timothy 1, 20, Hymenaeus and Alexander. And he will mention others as well in these letters. These are the certain men teaching strange doctrines. We should not allow anybody to deviate from the Scripture. The moment he deviates from the Scripture, he's teaching strange doctrines. Then we should have a curious nature. We should say, you said that. Where is that found again? I didn't get that reference. Give me that reference again. I want to read it and I want to study it and I want to figure it out. Figure out what you just said, what you taught from that passage. Or you have something happening in your life. You should be curious to know what does the Word of God have to say about it. And then go ask those who know what the Word of God has to say. But don't leave it alone and allow strange doctrines to infiltrate your life. He mentions some of them right here in verse 4. Myths, endless genealogies, and which give rise to mere speculation. We should not be speculative people. We should not be theoretical people. We have to be practical people, obedient people, not speculative people. Well, I wonder what God thinks of this. And well, I wonder what God thinks of that. And just let it be intellectual stimulation. It should not be mere intellectual stimulation and speculation. We are not meeting as church. We should not meet as church. No church should meet in order simply to learn some new things about the Bible, to be able to banter back and forth, Well, what do you think of that? Well, I think this way. Oh, okay, Uh, ha, ha. And pat each other on the back and go have lunch together. That's not the way it's supposed to be. We're supposed to be serious about the truth and imbibe it, obey it in our life. He says in verse 4, it does not further the administration of God, which is by faith. If we actually believe in what we're learning, then we're going to obey it. Like James says, faith without works is dead. If we, if we have true faith, then we'll have works. We're going to have 
a life that shows forth that we actually do believe it. That was James 2, 14 to 26. Here too, the apostle in verse 5 says, the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. That's what we are about. We're not just about informational knowledge. We're not about mental assent. We're not about knowledge, pure, bare, rote knowledge. We're not about that. The knowledge we gain should cause us to live a godly life. The doctrine that conforms to godliness, as he says in chapter 6, 1 Timothy 6, 3 to 5. Or as he says right here, according, sound teaching according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted, verses 10 and 11. It should be producing that. Love of God, love of neighbor from a pure heart. Good conscience, sincere faith. We begin to love God truly and we begin to love one another truly. He says in verse 5, pure heart as opposed to an impure heart. Well, what would an impure heart be? Deceitful, depraved, lying heart. The heart should not be harboring any kind of deceit. It should be pure. He says also good conscience. The opposite of good conscience is an evil conscience. Well, what produces an evil conscience? Guilt. When we sin, we know we're guilty, and that's what the Bible calls an evil conscience. But our faith, the goal of our instruction, what we are about, is a good conscience. We want people to know they are forgiven. We want them to know they have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We want people to know and be assured that they are going to heaven, that their sins are indeed forgiven. They are reconciled to God in Christ. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5.1 That's how the good conscience is obtained, by truly believing in Christ. And he says, sincere faith. What would an insincere faith be? A hypocritical faith. Somebody who pretends to believe but doesn't really believe. Somebody who presents himself as a believer, a true believer, but he's not really a true believer. He's insincere. He's not genuine. He's fake. He's practicing a fake faith instead of a sincere faith, a true faith. So we are about this. We should be about it. But the false teachers are not. This is serious, is it not? If the true believers are about love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith, he's contrasting it. He's saying the sin would be the opposite. So what is the opposite and what are they doing? He explains verses 6 and following. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. They stray from verse 5 and they turn to Fruitless discussion. What's the point of discussing? What's the point of debating? What's the point of whatever they do? If it's not producing what it should produce. Love from a pure heart, good conscience, and sincere faith. Then, verse 7, look at their audacity. Look at their pride. Wanting to be teachers of the law even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. They want to teach the law, but they don't understand what they're saying. They're just saying it. And they're just saying it because they don't really believe it. They don't have the sincere faith. Not only do they not understand what they say, but they make confident assertions about things, confident assertions. He's not, he's not disdaining confidence. He's disdaining ignorant confidence when you don't know what you're talking about. That's why 
before one speaks of what's in the Bible, he ought to know what it actually says. Accurately. Okay, verses 8 to 11. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Most people today, based on the New Testament erroneously, will say the law is evil. The law has no place. The law is no good. Let's forget it. No need to mention law. If you mention law, you are a legalist. If you mention law, you are a Pharisee. If you mention law, you believe in works righteousness. If you believe in law, you don't believe Jesus died for your sins. Then why does he say right here the law is good if one uses it lawfully? What does this verse mean? It has to mean that it is good if we use it lawfully. So how is how are we su- supposed to use it lawfully in this passage? Verse 9. It's for the lawless and rebellious, ungodly, sinners, unholy, profane, killers of fathers and mothers, murderers, immoral men, homosexuals, kidnappers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. The law is made for people like these sinners. Whoever is committing these iniquities, he needs to know that the law teaches against these sins. He needs to know it. So if he doesn't know it, how can he believe in Jesus Christ? Why does he believe in Jesus Christ? What's the point of it? If he doesn't believe that he has, in fact, transgressed God's laws in these ways. Contrary to sound teaching. What's the opposite of sound teaching? Unsound. And by sound and unsound, we're not talking about what you hear audibly. We're talking about sound used in the sense of health. That which is healthy or unhealthy. Healthy for what? Healthy for your soul. Or unhealthy for your soul. There are things that you consume that may be unhealthy for your soul. But not the gospel. He's saying... Whatever is contrary to the sound teaching of the gospel, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. The sound teaching is equivalent to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. That's where the sound teaching is found, in the word of Christ, in the Bible. That's where we will find it. Anything that's against it is unsound, which means it's unhealthy, which means it is detrimental to our souls. It is cancerous to our souls. As he says in chapter uh, 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, he calls it gangrene. 2 Timothy 2, 16 to 18. 2 Timothy 2, 16. But avoid worldly and empty chatter, for it will lead to further ungodliness. And their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, men who have gone astray from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place, and thus they upset the faith of some. In that case, believing that the resurrection has already taken place is equivalent to gangrene, a horrifying disease. Unsound teaching. In this passage, the apostle does not give us room to say, well, that was just a small sin. It's not a big sin. It's not a heinous sin. It's not a scandalous public sin. He doesn't give us any room for that. Sin is sin. And once we know about it and we refuse to repent, we are guilty before God. We must repent. He was guilty of egregious sins and did repent and believe. Verses 12 to 17. In verse 12, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service. He thanks Christ, but Christ is in heaven. 
If Christ is in heaven and he's thanking Christ, this means that Christ possesses deity because he has to be praying to Christ to thank him. Contrary to those who deny the divine nature of Christ, verse 12 proves his divine nature because Christ is in heaven, not on the earth, when Paul thanks him in 1 Timothy. Also, he reiterates the point that Christ strengthened him, considered him faithful, and put him into service. Back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It is Christ who is the master and Lord and Savior of Paul. And the grace, notice it, it is in verse 13. Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, and yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. We hear these days, the past is the past. Let's not talk about the past. Let's just talk about the bright future. The pleasant, uh, the pleasant, the bright, the shiny, glorious future. Let's talk about the good things to come. We don't need to talk about the past and no evil things. People who say that are controlled by Satan. They are evil people. The Apostle Paul is talking about his own past right here. He's talking about it because it's important to know. It's important to know who he was and who he now is. Because if we don't know and talk about the past, individually our past, our past experiences and the past experiences of others, we are not going to learn and we cannot have a contrastive view of sin and the grace of God. Sin and the grace of God. His sin is in verse 13, but the grace of God in 13 and 14. He was shown mercy. Verse 13 and 14, it says, The grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. We will not understand God's mercy, God's grace, God's love, unless we see it contrasted with our old self, with our sins. Only then will we truly appreciate who we are now, that we are different now, and not temporarily different. Not temporarily different, but permanently and eternally different. Permanently now, and growing in grace and knowledge, but also eternally. Those who are temporarily different are not truly different, not truly converted. We know that because in 2 Peter 2, 17 to 22, Peter warns people that there are, warns those who indulge in sin that they are like dogs and hogs. Dogs and hogs. Dogs that temporarily have relief from their upset stomach, so they vomit, but after they vomit, they go to the vomit and eat it up again. A pig may be washed and cleaned, but after you release him, he will want to go back to the dirt, to the mire, to the filth. He will want to wade in it. He will want to sleep in it. He will want to make his bed in it. That's the pig. Temporary conversion is false conversion. Not the Apostle Paul. He endured till the end. 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy, in order that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. This trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance by whom? By you and me. We should fully accept this fact. The reason Christ Jesus came into the world was to save sinners. He did not come into the world to save innocent, pure, godly, righteous people. He did not come into the world for that. He came into the world 
to reverse people from being sinners to saints, as he did with Paul, even as heinous as Paul. It's possible, by the grace of God. It's possible. He came for that purpose. That means that when people hear the gospel, they need to know, they need to know clearly that they are sinners. If they don't know clearly that they are sinners, if they don't believe that fact, they will not be saved. They cannot be saved. They cannot understand the true reason why Christ Jesus came into the world. Therefore, pastors who refuse to tell the people and remind them that they are sinners and and in need of the grace of Christ, and the reason He came into the world was to save sinners, He's not preaching the true gospel. But usually they excuse themselves this way. They'll say love, grace, and mercy a hundred times in their sermon. They'll say the word sin one time and then say, well, I called everybody a sinner. I said we're all sinners. No, that's what politicians do. That's what depraved, corrupt politicians do in order to make sure that they get all of the voters to vote for them. Well, no, no, I did mention your issue in my speech. No, you didn't mention it the right way. You mentioned it, but you didn't mention it the right way. You did not mention it as though you believe in that. You mentioned it just to get my vote. And the same here. Pastors must must be teaching this. Otherwise, there's no salvation. And then we return in verse 16 to the fact that Paul says why the Scripture... And he records his past. Why is Paul's past recorded in verse 16? Yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost, as the foremost of sinners, he says, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. For an example as an example for those who would believe in Him for eternal life. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about the people subsequent to His writing of this letter. That people need to know from the example of the Apostle Paul what his background was and what God did to convert him and make him a new man in Christ. As an example for those who would believe. In the future, you and me and many others. We need to know what God is all about. We need to know what we are before God converts us and what true conversion is. Paul's example is here. We have Peter. We have the rest of the apostles. We have the prophets. We have many saints. They are listed in Hebrews 11, a list of many saints about the things that they were before, what they struggled to overcome, how they grew in faith, how they endured until the end, Hebrews 11. Even some saints who committed sins and how they recovered from those sins, how they repented from those sins. We have all that recorded in the Bible. Even we have the name of Rahab. In the Old Testament, She is called Rahab in the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 2, Joshua chapter 6. She's mentioned there. She was a Canaanitess, not of the Hebrew race. But she believed, Joshua chapter 2. But what was her background? What did she do for a living? She was a harlot, a whore, a prostitute. That's what she was. That's what she was. In the Old Testament. So that's recorded for what reason? To tell us, no matter what our background was, God can save us. But why is she still recorded there? And why do we know her by name? Is God rubbing it in? Is He pouring salt over a wound? Is, what's God doing with that? He's not doing anything like that. 
He's left it there as an example for us. And not only in the New Testament, even, uh, in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament, when she is mentioned in Hebrews 11.31, and when she is mentioned in James 2.25, she's not mentioned merely as, oh, that, that Canaanitess that God saved. No, her name is there, Rahab. And not just her name, but what she used to do. She's called Rahab the harlot. Though she did not continue in her harlotry, she's still known as Rahab the harlot in the New Testament after she was saved. Contrary to what people say, just forget the past. No, that's not the way God looks at it. We forget the past in terms of this. God will not hold our sins against us. In that sense, we forget the past. But otherwise, we don't just forget the past as though it never actually happened. Only in the sense, or mainly in the sense, that he does not hold our sins against us. He's not going to hold us culpable, guilty, condemned on the day of judgment, but forgives us now and gives us the peace of Christ now to look forward to that day when we'll meet Christ and not be punished for our sins. Ezekiel 18.22 says, All his transgressions which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced he will live. Will not be remembered against him. Ezekiel 18.22 Another aspect of sin, who's supposed to get glory? These days because of social media, these days because of easy photography on smartphones, who's getting glory all the time every day? Who's getting glory? Who's taking pictures of themselves and what they do and sending it to everybody. Who's doing that? They're getting glory. But here it says in verse 17, Now to the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We're supposed to be living day to day for His glory, not our glory. His glory. And God created the world not primarily to display his love for every person in the world. He created the world to manifest his glory to every person in the world. His glory, whether he, whether he demonstrates that glory in loving us for redemption or demonstrates that glory in punishing us with his justice. Justice manifested and thereby he punishes us. In both ways, he's glorified. The only God. Verses 18 to 20. This, I command, this command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may fight the good fight, keeping faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have delivered over to Satan so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Timothy is supposed to live up to prophecies made concerning him. And it says in 18 that by them you may fight the good fight. Fight the good fight. The Christian life is a fighting life. But it's a good fight. No, we are not seeking quarrels. We're not seeking contention. We're not seeking, seeking to be uh, starting disputes and factions. That's not the way we are. We're not supposed to be pugnacious, as he says in chapter 3. We're not supposed to be that way. That's not what he means by the fight the good fight. He means that when we know the truth, when we have believed the truth, when we have embraced it, we are supposed to hold on to it and not let anything undermine it. And what will undermine it? False teaching, strange doctrines, 
false teachers, savage wolves, goats in the midst of sheep. These are the things that will undermine the true faith. We're supposed to keep that true faith and anything that seeks to undermine it, we're supposed to reject it. We're supposed to have the shield of faith, the breastplate of righteousness, the sword of the Spirit. We're supposed to have these elements of the Christian life to withstand the onslaught of the enemy. That's what it means to fight the good fight of faith. So there is a fight. We are supposed to be soldiers. We're supposed to be good soldiers of Christ Jesus. If we are not ready to fight, we are not in the faith. We have to be, once we're in the faith, fight the good fight of faith. He says, keeping faith. Remember, this is permanently and eternally. Permanently for eternal life, keeping faith. Not temporarily, not just for a few months or for one or two years, or even three or four years. No, it should last for the rest of our life. And a good conscience. Every day we live, we ought to live before the Lord and before men in doing that which we know from God's Word, His true and holy Word, to be right and pure. We are seeking to please God. Acts chapter 23, Acts 23, when the Apostle Paul was brought before the council, the Sanhedrin, the leadership, religious leadership of the Jewish nation. 23 verse 1, and they're seeking to find fault with him. These are fault finders. 23.1, and Paul, looking intently at the council, said, Brethren, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. And of course, he means after his conversion. He's saying, I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience before God up to this day. You're accusing me of heresy. You're accusing me of schism. You're accusing me of being devious, of being in cahoots with Gentiles and desecrating the temple and denying the law of Moses and denying the faith, the hope of the fathers. No, I'm not in doing anything like that. I have lived my life with a perfectly good conscience. 24, 16, the book of Acts 24, verse 16. In view of this, now he is before the governor, and he says this, in view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. So, Timothy, and we, we all should be this way, living our life with a good conscience before God and before men. We live that good conscience by speaking the truth and living the truth. But false teachers, heretics, apostates, the Bible has different names for them. Here, he calls them shipwreck. It says, which some have rejected. How important is it for us to fight the good fight, keep faith in a good conscience? Very important, because otherwise we suffer shipwreck. We reject it and suffer shipwreck in regard to their faith, he says. Is it good to be suffering shipwreck? What if you have shipwreck in the middle of the ocean, in a violent storm? What's going to happen? Death. Even as a ship is approaching the shore, if it comes across a reef, it, and it's destroyed, one could die right there too. It's not good to suffer shipwreck in regard to faith. If we sh suffer shipwreck, we have denied the gospel. We prove to be unbelievers. 
And then two names are mentioned here, which often today, often today it's a no-no. People will start sermons and preach sermons. Well, you know, there's somebody out there, and there's many people out there. I won't say who they are, because it's not about that. But you, you just need to know there are many people out there, lots of people out there, who don't believe just like this. Well, how does that help anybody? If we don't know who they are, well, they might be in my household. They might be in my neighborhood. They might be down the street. They might be my friends. They might, they might be my co-workers. It might be the book uh, that I just re- uh, picked up and re- uh, started reading from the Christian bookstore. How do I know what you're talking about? How do I know who you're talking about? Unless you tell me the name. As he does here, Hymenaeus and Alexander. He warns them. He tells them the name. And we have names throughout the Bible. We have names from the book of Genesis to Revelation. In the book of Genesis, the first evil name we have, evildoer name, is Cain, who persisted in unbelief. Of course, Adam and Eve sinned before Cain ever lived. They did sin, but then they believed. But not Cain, permanent unbeliever, wicked man. His name is there in the Bible. And we use his name all the time. All the way throughout the Bible and into the book of Revelation. We have Babylon the Great, the mother of all harlots. In Revelation chapter 17, 18, Babylon is mentioned. We have earlier in the book of Revelation, the Nicolaitans, chapter 2. We have Jezebel mentioned. We have evildoers mentioned. It's not a sin to mention names. Actually, it's a sin not to mention names. Because if you don't mention names, people don't know who you're talking about. And their sins are so destructive, he hands them over to Satan. Here's another problem. These days, with fake love, fake patience, fake mercy, fake gentleness, fake, fake faith, uh, fake faith, they say, well, we just need to be patient with people. Yes, to a point to the point that the Bible expects us. But then when the Bible expects us to end our patience and then to act according to justice, we should act according to justice. Like he did right here in verse 20. He has delivered them over to Satan. And there will come a time when we need to hand people over to Satan. God's done with them. Because they are done with the people of God. They have harassed. They have persecuted. They have slandered the people of God. Therefore, they are blaspheming God. They are against God. If they are against the body of Christ, they are against Christ. Therefore, to a point, we are patient with them according to biblical prescriptions. But after that point, we must deliver them over to Satan. Let them alone. Leave them alone. Let them go their own way. So that they may be taught not to blaspheme. When heretics, unbelievers, pretentious believers, false brethren say, just be patient, be patient. What they really mean is, that's code word for don't ever confront them and don't ever punish them. Don't ever say anything about it. Just leave it alone. That's really what patience means. Whenever liars are speaking, you have to figure out their vocabulary. Figure out their their vocabulary. What they mean by the words, even common words, what they mean by them is not what we mean by them. And once you know what he's doing with the words he's using, he needs to be confronted. Sir, that's not what love means. That's not what patience means. You're distorting the biblical view. And Paul, taught not to blaspheme. That's going to shame him. That's going to humiliate him when he is taught not to blaspheme. And this is another aspect. It's not wrong to humiliate. It's not wrong to shame in the right biblical way. We're not talking about being 
rude. We're not talking about being jerks. We're not talking about anything that has to do with misbehavior, uncouth behavior. We're not talking about that. We're talking about handling things biblically, even if it leads to the shame of the one who refuses to repent, so that they may be taught not to blaspheme. Chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. What would the sin be here? The sin here would be not praying for those in authority. If we don't pray for those in authority, we are sinning because it says in verse 1, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority. The sin is not praying for those in authority. It's an urgent matter. He says, I urge. So it's urgent. When we don't pray for kings and all who are in authority, urgently we are sinning. We cannot be against them. We cannot be having misconceptions, erroneous positions on those in authority, but have a biblical mind, biblical values in relation to those in authority. And one of them is to pray for them. And pray for what reason? Verse 2, In order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. It's necessary for us, with the help of the government, to lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Basically, he means preaching the gospel making converts, preaching the gospel, and then living according to that gospel. So when the government leaves us to do that, that's good. When the government disrupts it, when they intercept it, when they undermine it, that's where the problem is. And they shouldn't do that. So it's their sin when they do it, not our sin when they try to disrupt something that God expects us to do. It's their sin, not ours. We also notice that the Christian life is a tranquil and quiet life. It's not a life of turmoil, tumult. It's not a life of rabble-rousing, being troublesome meddlers. We are not overturning society, causing civil unrest. We're not rioters. We're not vandalizers. We're not arsonists. Some political philosophies believe in those things, but we don't. We are seeking to live a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Note also the word quiet. It appears in verse 2 as well in verse 11. Let a woman quietly receive instruction. Verse 12, remain Quiet. The quiet life. Not a troublemaking life. Not a life of busybodies. But a quiet life. Mind your own business. Do what's right. This is godliness and dignity. In all godliness and dignity. Verse 2. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. So that means that it's evil and unacceptable to do the opposite. God, verse 4, desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Then we should be desiring that too. Of course, the all men in verse 4 and the all in verse 6 have to do with, in this context, Gentilic kings, Gentilic authorities. That's what he means here that even they are savable. God wants to save some of them. He doesn't mean every human being in verse 4, nor in verse 6. He does not mean every person. Not at all. And verse 5 says, there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. We have knowledge of the only true God. 
We have knowledge of the only mediator, redeemer of men. We have that knowledge, and it is Christ. If we have that knowledge, is it not a sin to hide that knowledge, to keep it to ourselves, not to spread it? When we are not encountering others and telling them about the true God and telling them about the one mediator, we are withholding true knowledge from them. But we shouldn't do that. We should be looking for ways and opportunities day by day to spread it, not withhold it. Verse 6, it cost the life of Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony born at the proper time. Is the life of Christ or the death of Christ insignificant, irrelevant? Is it worth little? Is it like a penny or even worse, a grain of sand? What is it like? Or is it like the purest gold? And if it is that, we have to cherish it that way and talk about it that way. The apostle returns to his calling, verse 7. He's appointed a preacher, apostle, and teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth, reminding us of his positions of authority and the graces that Christ endowed upon him to fulfill these ministries, and that he's doing it faithfully and truthfully. Faithfully and truthfully. He's not a liar. And we shouldn't be liars. Verse 8. Men. Men. Everywhere. Notice in every place. This is relevant because of verses 9 to 15. As well as other passages of the New Testament where people say, well, this passage is cultural. It doesn't apply everywhere. But he says in verse 8, I want the men in every place. And by every place, he means not just in Timothy's church in Ephesus, but other churches in Ephesus. Also, other churches in other places, in addition to Ephesus. Do you think he's saying that in Ephesus, where Timothy is, I want you all, you men, to pray, lifting up holy hands without wrath and dissension. But over there, over there in Colossae, and over there in Berea, and over there in Rome, in these other places, men, you can pray, but you don't have to have holy hands when you pray. You can have unholy hands, filthy, profane hands, committing sins, and you can pray being very angry with each other and causing dissension and fights. No, he's not saying that. So this means every place, this is the way it ought to be. We cannot be praying while living in sin. That's what he means by holy hands. Our hands should not be committing sins. And he says, without wrath and dissension. There shouldn't be these quarrels happening between the brothers. It should be peaceful without wrath. Wrath toward each other, or even wrath toward God. We shouldn't be angry at God and expect Him to answer our prayers. Nor dissension. Dissension, divisions, factions, that should not be the case. Our mind should be focused on harmony and unity. Not that it's always going to be that way, but this is our focus. This is our desire to pursue peace and harmony not wrath and dissension. Men should be living this way. That's where their godliness will be manifested, at least in this verse. But how about the women? Verses 9 to 15. Likewise, that means that he addressed the men, now he's addressing the women, or the women's role. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as befits women making a claim to godliness. Proper clothing should be worn. 
the adornment must be proper clothing. Well, what's proper? He says, modestly and discreetly. Immodest is showing too much, and indiscreetness would be being flashy about it, drawing attention to it. You want people to see. You want people to notice. And in the case of women, the men to notice, but also women want other women to notice. That should not be the case. It should be modestly and discreetly. And what kinds of things are drawing attention whenever people meet? Braided hair, gold, pearls, costly garments. If women are infatuated by these things, obsessed by these things, then they are not behaving modestly and discreetly. But instead of the focus being on being gaudy and flashy and exposing too much skin, he says that women making a claim to godliness, which means there cannot be together an immodest, indiscreet, godly woman. Those don't go together. They don't go together. That means that there cannot be a godly Christian woman who is a pornographer or a harlot, a prostitute. There cannot be a godly Christian woman who shows her her private parts. That cannot happen. Or who loves to be gaudy or flashy indiscreet with her clothing. It doesn't go together. But what does go? Good works. He says good works. The good works, if you clothe yourself with good works, then you can make a claim to godliness. Good works and godliness go together, but not otherwise. Then in reference to teaching... And authority, verse 11, let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. Quietly receive instruction. Don't be interruptive. Don't complain. Don't be asking all these questions and taking over the conversations and even the church and the church services. But learn with entire submissiveness. And by that he means remain quiet. Verse 12, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. No teaching and no exercise of authority over a man but to remain quiet. What does he mean? In a nutshell, he means that when there are church services the women should not be teaching and exercising authority over a man. He's not talking about individual private conversations that husband and wife might have with another husband and wife or any such scenario. He's not talking about side personal conversations. He's talking about when there are services of the church going on that this is the way it ought to be. And why do we say that? Because, for example, Acts chapter 18, Priscilla and Aquila, and Priscilla is mentioned first. In Acts 18, 24 to 28, they take Apollos aside, husband and wife take Apollos aside, and instruct him in the word, which is fine. But not when it is this kind of church service and church setting. And then the reasons. Are the reasons cultural? If we don't do this, if we have female pastors, if we have female deacons teaching and exercising authority over men, if we have that going on, is that a sin or not, according to this passage? It'd be a sin. It would be a sin. And is it cultural or is it perpetual? Is it universal? 
and perpetual. Verse 13, for it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That's his first reason. He says for, verse 13. For, F-O-R, when it starts a sentence, it usually means it's explaining the reason for a previous statement. Because it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. That's his first reason. The creational order, the man or Adam, the husband, was first created and then Eve. That's the first reason. The second reason is verse 14. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. Adam was not deceived, the woman was quite deceived and fell into transgression. And it does say, Eve admits to God, because God, when he confronted Adam, he confronted Eve, and when he confronted Eve, Eve's response in Genesis 3.13 is, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. That's what she says to God. The apostle is not ramming an unpleasant word into the narrative of Genesis. He's not doing that. Eve actually said that to God. The serpent deceived me and I ate. And it was quite a deception because it plunged all of us into ruin. So that's why it says the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. She was deceived, manipulated, hoodwinked, but Adam was not. Adam deliberately, he knew what was going on and he just deliberately went along with it. But the woman was caught up with Satan the serpent and his deception. But that's not the end of it. What is it that should be displayed? Verse 15, but women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctification with self-restraint. Women are preserved, and literally it says saved. Women are saved through the bearing of children. What does he mean by that? He means that women will show their good works, women will show their godliness when they bear children and raise them up. As he said in chapter 5, verse 14, Therefore, I want younger widows to get married, bear children, keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, for some have already turned aside to follow Satan. 5, 14, and 15. This is also, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, 10, after saying we are saved by grace through faith, in verses 8 and 9, in Ephesians 2.10, he said, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Ephesians 2.8-10. So verse 10 of Ephesians 2 is explaining the outflow, the manifestation, or the demonstration of our true faith. So he says this, if they continue in faith, love, and sanctification with self-restraint. This means that when they bear children, take care of the children, can keep house, and give the enemy no occasion for reproach, they continue in faith, love, sanctification, or holiness, and self-control, that's self-restraint, self-control, they are showing forth that they are, in fact, Godly women, practicing good works, verse 10. First uh, Timothy 2.10, that that's who they really are. These are aspects of sin and judgment. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.